0: Um, in the wake of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, considerable academic attention has already been focused uh, on preventive war, and Michael Walzer's uh, classic account of anticipation already appears in Just Unjust Wars. I think the recent sanctions on Iran and the debate over its nuclear program suggest the usefulness of a forward-looking perspective on um, preventive war, rather than a retroactive perspective that was offered so far, primarily with reference to Iraq. I'm going to focus here on the contemporary literature on just war theory, much of which I would say opposes early military strikes. And I'm going to suggest that it actually contains the resources to support an early Israeli strike on Iran. Ultimately, I'll propose that Iran is a legitimate candidate for early military action designed to prevent it from developing nuclear weapons. I'll argue that in principle, under certain conditions and when the time is right, a unilateral Israeli strike on Iran would be justifiable both morally and legally as self-defense. First, what are we talking about? Um, As Henry Shue and David Roden point out in the uh, introduction to their collection on preemption, the terminology of this discussion is um, significant. Preemptive war aims to avert an imminent harm. Preventive war aims to avert a harm that is temporally distant. Preventive war is widely condemned morally and legally prohibited. By contrast, many contemporary just war theorists and many international lawyers regard a unilateral response to an imminent attack as justifiable self-defense, though the precise meaning of imminence as well as individual cases remain contested. Basically, legal scholars ask the same questions about the legitimate onset of war and the meaning of imminence. But this distinction between preemption versus prevention is less prominent in their discussions. Legal disagreements are phrased in terms of the license granted to states or their inherent right recognized in the UN Charter to act in self-defense if an armed attack occurs. While the UN Charter system aims to avoid war, Chapter 7 uh, of the Charter recognizes two exceptions to prohibitions on the threat or use of force. Um, self-defense if an armed attack occurs, and military action undertaken with uh, um, authorization by the Security Council. For the lawyers, the question is whether any particular act of belligerency in question can be assimilated to self-defense. Um, otherwise, it can be legal only if authorized by the Security Council. At what early stage might we regard an armed attack as having occurred or begun to occur justifying self-defense? George Fletcher offers an interesting conceptual point about um, various commentaries on Article 51. He says, on the plausible assumption that an imminent attack is one which is already actually present in progress and in that sense has begun to occur, there's absolutely nothing preemptive about responding to it. You don't need a broad notion of what constitutes an armed attack and a theory of preemptive war. One or the other will do. But why should we wait to be attacked at all? Striking early may well prove less costly in human life than waiting for the threat to mature. Jeff McMahon points out the following with reference to Israel's attack on Iraq's nuclear facility in 1981. Israel reasonably believed that if it did not attack immediately, it would have lost its only realistic chance to eliminate this threat to its continued existence. It attacked the reactor on a Sunday when French engineers who were building the plant were absent. It is indeed an important feature of this example, McMahon says, that there were no illegitimate human targets and thus no attacks, whether intended or unintended, on the innocent. Although this preventive attack was clearly illegal and was universally condemned at the time, a very strong case can be made that it was an instant of legitimate prevention. And Walter Senator Armstrong makes a similar point about the Israeli attack from a consequential point of view. If they had waited to bomb it when it was active, then very many people in Iraq would have been killed by the explosion and the nuclear fallout, whereas only a few people were killed when they bombed the reactor um, before it was active. Israel's attack on Osirak was widely condemned. It was condemned by the Security Council without a U.S. veto. But the limited casualties it incurred suggest that um, striking early, at least in some cases, is morally advantageous, both from a consequential perspective and from the perspective of the rights of the potential victims. And in fact, most writers on this uh, topic point out that from the 16th to the 19th century, um, European just war theorists argued straightforwardly for the legitimacy of preventive war aimed to forestall even the most remote type of threats particularly any alteration in the European balance of power Um, and it's also noted by Walzer and and David Rodin and um, others that their logic ran as follows war is inevitable fighting later rather than sooner will be far more costly if possible at all so why wait? Why wait? The answer, as usual, comes from Michael Walter, and it's been restated many times since. Stated plainly, there are two basic reasons for waiting. One concerns consequences. The other concerns the rights of the potential victims of attack. As for consequences, um, reinstating a permissive doctrine of prevention would lower the threshold for war and again make war too frequent and routine, this time with devastating modern weapons. It would make war too frequent because the doctrine of preventive war would justify too many wars, calculating far in advance if war is in fact inevitable and um, what the relative costs would be, uh, would be based on biased and imprecise calculations. This would also be open to bad faith abuse. It would make war too routine because a doctrine of preventive war treats war casually as an instrument of policy rather than a last resort in the face of actual aggression. Furthermore, the preventive war doctrine generates conflict. If states can expect to be attacked at any time by other states that view them as threatening, then they have strong reasons to attack earlier and preempt their adversaries, as it were. But as Alan Buchanan points out, these consequential objections contain two separate arguments that can be overcome. First, they point the dangers associated with accepting a general rule permitting prevention. They don't themselves rule out any possible um, case, exceptional case, uh, of justified preventive war. Second, these consequential objections focus on potential error and abuse. Buchanan Buchanan himself believes that these can be overcome by subjecting uh, preventive war to review by international institutions, others like Henry Shue, David Luban, George Fletcher, call for more reliable intelligence information that was supplied prior to the American war in Iraq. And all these consequential concerns have one further failing, as David Luban points out. Arguing that a doctrine of prevention is likely to license too many wars begs the central question um, by assuming that more preventive wars are necessarily worse than less preventive wars. If particular preventive wars are justified in terms of self-defense and preserving human rights, then sometimes more preventive wars might be better overall than fewer preventive wars. Sometimes, as in the late 1930s, abstaining from preventive war may result in more war rather than less war. Appeasement, as opposed to prevention, may actually lead to large-scale war. Now, apart from these consequential reasons for avoiding escalation and conflict um, and the aspiration to minimize human suffering associated with too many wars, there are also principled right-based reasons. Um, as long as a state and its members haven't engaged in any act of aggression, um, how could they possibly be liable to attack? A sovereign state and its members have a legal and moral right not to be attacked so long as they've not engaged in any aggression. Jeff McMahon raises this problem, but he also supplies the answer. He describes the type of threat that could justify preventive war as analogous to the domestic crime of conspiracy. Putting an adversary at risk by committing a crime of aggression that falls short of attack, in principle, can generate moral liability to attack. Though the burden of proving such conspiracies, McMahon says, is very high indeed. David Lubin also suggests that in some cases, Active preparation for war, planning purposefully to use weapons of mass destruction, is analogous to conspiracy to commit a crime. Forming the wrongful intentions intending to launch a large-scale attack on basic human rights, backed up by persistent and overt action to further this plan, is comparable to the domestic crime of conspiracy. And it's sufficient to deprive a sovereign state and its soldiers of their immunity from attack. So both the consequential objections and the liability of opposed uh, oppositions to preemptive action can be overcome. As for consequences, it's quite possible that the benefits of a particular preemptive strike will outweigh the bad consequences, including the harm that the action will cause to the general rule against prevention. As for liability, a state is liable to preventive force if it acts in ways that are analogous to conspiring to commit a crime of aggression we're left with the legal requirement of imminence. Even if one accepts, and I'm not sure many of you will, that something like a conspiracy is underway, at what point would it be legitimate to resort to force in response? Now, as I said, ordinarily under the UN Charter system, the use of force absent the prior occurrence of an armed attack is illegal. It is, however, widely Accepted, though admittedly not unanimously um, accepted, that Article 51 permits member states not only to engage in armed self-defense after they have been attacked, but also to preempt an armed attack that is imminent. When I say generally accepted, um, I'm citing George Fletcher, I'm citing David Lubin, but I know, for example, that David Roden might disagree. Um, as Fletcher puts this, no one would reasonably propose a doctrine of self-defense that was limited to striking back only after being struck by a phalanx of bombers or guided nuclear missiles, pointing out that such a requirement would turn self-defense into reprisal. While it is clear, Fletcher continues, in customary international law that the right of self-defense includes the response to an imminent attack, there is no treaty explicitly defining imminence, and it's consequently legally unclear what this actually means in terms of triggering the right to self-defense. Discussing early military action, Walter describes a continuum of anticipation rather than a stark dichotomy between imminent and non imminent threats. At the most restrictive end of this continuum, he quotes US Secretary of State Daniel Webster from 1842 regarding the Caroline incident. Webster wrote In order to justify preemptive violence, there must be shown a necessity of defense, instant overwhelming, leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation. Walter argues that this doctrine of uh, preemption, popular among legal scholars, is far too restrictive, um, and it permits no more than the obvious last minute reflex action uh, in response to an attack which is already underway. Walter thinks this doesn't address itself usefully to the real life cases of imminent war. So Walter charts a middle course, more permissive than Webster's reflex action, but falling short of permissive, preventive war. Um, Walter argues that the point of sufficient threat justifying preventive action is met where the following three conditions obtain. A manifest intent to injure, a degree of active preparation that makes that intent a positive danger, and a general situation in which waiting or doing anything other than fighting greatly magnifies the risk. Since that time, it's been noted more than once that imminence may no longer be comprehensible in the straightforwardly temporal sense in terms of weeks or days, especially in the age of weapons of mass destruction. The requirement of imminence may be fundamental to justifications of self-defense, but this requirement need not necessarily be a simple countdown of weeks or days before the impending attack, but rather the notion that a first strike is justifiable When it is undertaken at something like the last moment for successfully preventing the harm, it is intended to forestall. This understanding essentially adapts the just-war requirement of last resort to the sphere of anticipation. Um, Fletcher supplies the following example. Suppose a terrorist threatens to implant an undetectable nuclear device that is set to explode in a year. He can be stopped now, but once the device is implanted, it will be too late. In these cases, the attack is non-imminent, but the threat is real and ineluctable, and recognizing a right to legitimate defense would seem sensible and appropriate. Arguing for a restricted doctrine of preventive uh, war which would justify first strikes against rogue states constructing weapons of mass destruction, David Lubin interprets imminence in probabilistic rather than temporal terms. In the traditional legal understanding of imminence, a first strike can be assimilated to self-defense when the wrongful aggression is imminent in temporal terms. Lubin argues that on the same logic, an attack that is imminent in terms of probability, being all but certain, justifies preventive war as self-defense. When suffering from the aggression of a rogue state, Lubin says is imminent in the probabilistic sense when it is virtually a sure thing. Preventive war is assimilated to self-defense just in the same way as preemptive war is assimilated to self-defense um, uh, usually. Now Lubin defines a rogue state as a threat state, a state fostering a militaristic and violent ideology backed up by a track record of violence and a build-up capacity to pose a genuine risk. His restricted doctrine holds that preventive wars are permissible against rogue states when a rogue state is one whose policies and past track record make it overwhelmingly likely that it is aiming with belligerent intentions. Now, this understanding of imminence in probabilistic rather than temporal terms is persuasive because responding to a temporally imminent nuclear threat is entirely meaningless to self-defense. One simply cannot defend oneself against a nuclear attack that is literally on its way. Continuing to regard imminence in purely temporal terms renders the inherent right to self-defense totally void in the nuclear age. While a permissive free-for-all doctrine of prevention is most undesirable, permitting military action only once an armed attack has literally begun to occur is a hollow license in the nuclear age. But how likely exactly does a nuclear attack have to be in order to qualify as imminent in the probabilistic sense? Lubin doesn't say, but in a later article on preventive war and human rights, he adds what I think is is an indispensable comment. The higher the stakes in a single attack by the enemy, the lower the threshold for preventive action. The sheer magnitude of anticipated harm, and not only its mathematical likelihood, has to be taken into account in assessing the risk we face and therefore the legitimacy of military action. Risk equals magnitude of harm times the probability of its occurrence. Once we reasonably exchange the temporal understanding of imminence for a probabilistic understanding, the probability of the pending attack and its enormity right, uh, replace the idea that it's instant and overwhelming. The magnitude of harm, and not merely its likelihood of maturing, becomes part of its overwhelming nature. Clearly, even when the stakes are high enough, the probability of an actual attack has to be very likely. And Lubin says this as well. Um, It can't just be some national psychosis about pending holocausts. The threat from one's enemy has to be real and likely, um, and not just a far off chance of some fluke disaster happening sometime in the distant future. Um, Nevertheless, if high probability should replace temporal imminence as a sufficient condition for justified prevention, this is because we perceive the overwhelming nature of the threat um, in terms of its enormity and not merely in terms of its temporal proximity. (coughs) It's the extent of the projected harm multiplied by the likelihood of its overtaking us that renders the risk overwhelming, though it may still take some time to mature. Okay, finally, Israel and Iran, which I assume everybody's waiting for. In late August 2010, shortly after the opening of Iran's um, nuclear power plant in Boucher, the U.S.-Obama administration assured Israel that the threat, while real um, and not far off, was nonetheless non-imminent in the temporal sense. At that time, American assessments were talking in terms of Uh, a year year from August 2010, before Iran could construct uh, nuclear weapons. In view of recent events, it looks like that time frame is probably a little bit further off, maybe as far off as 2015. Either way, despite denials from Tehran, the U.S., along with much of the international community, um, not only Israel, strongly suspect Iran of developing a secret nuclear weapons program, not so secret, and fear that it will attain nuclear military capability in the not-too-distant future. Israel is by far not the only possible target of Iranian aggression, nor is it the only nation in the Middle East or elsewhere gravely concerned with this threat. In Meqman and Luban's terms, it's widely believed that Iran is conspiring to attain nuclear weapons with which to threaten and possibly use against a variety of adversaries, most notably Israel. Four rounds of international sanctions have been implemented quite successfully, I'd say, and the UN has asserted its authority to oversee Iran's nuclear plant. More stringent sanctions have been implemented by the U.S. and its closer allies, deep concern about the prospect of a nuclear Iran within the more westernized Arab states matched those of Israelis. Um, when I first wrote that, people questioned that, but I think the WikiLeaks have solved my problems there. Fear of a nuclear Iran, presumably backed up by considerable international intelligence information and nothing like um, what predated Iraq, is not merely an Israeli panic about a second Holocaust. Now, needless to say, the construction of an atomic energy plant uh, or even the possession of nuclear weapons does not automatically co- uh, constitute just cause for war. Even with regard to military capability, Walter cautions that the standard military preparations that characterize the classic arms race do not necessarily count as sufficiently serious threat to justify war unless it violates some formally or tacitly agreed-upon limit. In the present case, Iran's nuclear project, particularly its enrichment of uranium, is already in violation of international limits set by the UN Security Council and the International Atomic Energy Agency resolutions. Furthermore, there's a good case to be made for limiting Iran's nuclear capability, as the international community aspires to do, and it's a case that would not apply to all other nations in the area. Unfair as this may seem, There is a significant real-life difference between nuclear power as a doomsday weapon in the hands of a stable democracy with a provable, no-first-use policy um, and and nuclear weapons in the hands of a totalitarian regime which actively supports terrorism and repeatedly threatens to wipe a member of the United Nations off the map. Some of you will disagree, but I don't think I'm going out on much of a limb in arguing that Iran is a rogue state. We can call it a state of concern. I'm not interested in branding it with the axis of evil. Um, I call it a threat state, following David Lubin. Internally, it's a domestic despotism. Internationally, it's a major sponsor of terrorism. Its ideology, hatred of the U.S. and Israel, may be no yardstick for rogueness, but utter contempt for liberal democratic values might be. Iran's track record of severe restrictions on human rights, terrorism brutality, aggressive public speeches, introduction of drone bombers dubbed the ambassador of death, Holocaust denial, and so forth, indicate a violent ideology. When combined with a build-up capacity to pose a genuine risk, this makes Iran into a threat state to be reckoned with. It remains to be seen, of course, when and how Iran ought to be reckoned with. Lubin suggests that preventive military action against the specific type of threat, threat states amassing weapons of mass destruction, can be justified as self-defense. Iran potentially poses just the right type of threat that warrants early military action. I'm afraid the theoretical discussion of the literature cannot possibly determine whether all the necessary conditions um, have thus far been met. Bearing in mind that much of this needs to be settled in the realm of practice rather than theory, I do have a few further hesitant comments to make on the specific case. First, what should we make of President Ahmadinejad's statements about Israel? Back in Just and Unjust Wars, Walter warns that the boastful ranting to which political leaders are often prone isn't in itself threatening. Injury must be offered in some material sense as well. nor are are provocations the same as threats. Ultimately, sufficient threat in Walter's term is largely a matter of material injury and context. Some linguistic discussions of Ahmadinejad's ranting concern the precise translation of his alleged threat to wipe Israel off the map. Um, I've seen some of this in The Guardian, some of this in The New York Times. Some commentators believe that these threats don't really sound that bad in the original. It's been suggested that they more accurately translate into a call for Israel to be wiped away or simply express the vague hope that it will somehow miraculously vanish or collapse without any specific plan for bringing this about. One expert suggests that Mach should be understood as Book of Countries, or maybe simply as some sort of metaphor, the pages of time and history. Admittedly, I don't speak Persian, and so all this complicated philology is largely lost on me. I can only say that in Hebrew, as well as in English, I think this all sounds quite bad enough. Then there's Ahmadinejad's reference to the Jewish state as the occupying regime of Jerusalem. This, again, when taken on its own, surely does not constitute just cause for war. Certainly the Iranian president cannot be faulted for his lack of Zionist enthusiasm. President Ahmadinejad may be expressing no more than the view espoused by some Western liberals, probably some of them in my audience here, who call for the establishment of a binational Arab-Jewish state from the Jordan to the sea, in place of what is today the state of Israel um, and the West Bank. None of this necessarily indicates any hostility towards Jews or any ill intent towards individual Israelis. But what these generous understandings of Mr. Ahmadinejad's statement neglect to point out is precisely their wider context. Liberal cosmopolitans who support political change within Israel do not usually complement their stand on multinational states with Holocaust denial and aid to terrorist organizations such as Hezbollah in Lebanon and Islamic Jihad. Nor do they combine their statements on atomic energy with their hopes for the demise of the Jewish state. Iranian threats have to be interpreted in the context of enhanced uranium enrichment, Holocaust denial, ambassadors of death, and aid to terrorism. We need look no further for material injury offered by Iran than its long-standing support for terrorist organizations responsible for the murder of countless Israelis. The all-too-familiar suggestion that a murderous dictator is expressing no more than reasonable anti-Jewish critique shared by some segments on the left, and that some of his grievances are actually reasonable, ought to ring harshly in European ears. Sometimes the boastful ranting of political leaders turns out to be sufficiently threatening when his hopes regarding the absence of Jews are expressed against the background of considerable buildup of arms and complicity in the murder of civilians. This last point about murdering civilians brings out a further bit of the context in which the Iranian threat ought to be judged. Whether or not Ahmadinejad literally threatens to wipe Israel off the map, the crucial issue here is not the annihilation of the Jewish state or the Jewish people as such, but rather the basic rights of individual Israelis. The primary threat under consideration is the prospect of a genocidal attack against a large number of Israelis, Jews and Arabs, by the way, and the collateral effect on Israel's neighbors as well as other countries, as well as direct attacks on other countries. Though it's sometimes pointed out that a resort to nuclear warfare on the part of Iran would be totally irrational. It would be utterly suicidal, given what we know about Israel's military capability for Iran to um, resort to nuclear war with Israel. And so these rational, wishful thinkers point out to Israelis, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Now it's apparently unclear to to the international community that Iran would, under all conditions, refrain from using nuclear weapons against Israel. Why not? In an article entitled "Optimal War and Use at Bellum, Eric Posner and Alan Sykes argue that deterrence might be ineffective against leaders who are not particularly concerned with their people. Leaders themselves might have reasonable hope of of escaping the consequences. Or they might be religious fanatics or ideologues prepared to launch an attack regardless of possible um, retaliation. Consider the religious zealots who believe that death during war against enemies will bring them to a blissful existence. I'm only partly convinced by this argument. Um, Posner and Sykes argue that Iran's public and government have strong religious motivations. It is not obvious the threat of retaliation following an actual attack will dissuade aggression by such governments. Far, far more significantly to my mind, they also question whether nuclear deterrence is going to be terribly effective against terrorists and their supplier states. If the fear, which I think it is in this case, is partly of states dispensing some form of nuclear weapons to terrorist groups, there may be little possibility of deterring them either culprit, with a threat of retaliation. International terrorists without much of a permanent base are notoriously difficult to deter. States are unlikely to suffer the brunt of nuclear retaliation for a terrorist attack. A nuclear attack on their entire population, as a response to an assault, however massive, launched by a handful of terrorists, is going to be regarded and ruled out as utterly excessive and disproportionate. In cases such as this one, in which the concern is partly about terrorists obtaining weapons of mass destruction, it is at least questionable whether deterrence is always a feasible option. Given Iran's track record of aiding terrorist organizations, it's overwhelmingly likely to supply its terrorist clients with weapons of mass destruction with the hope of avoiding retaliation on its soil. Now, even if Iran were to refrain from any of this for the time being, the infliction of perpetual terror in itself constitutes an attack, against Israel. This type of attack on the basic rights of Israelis to live safely and freely, living under Iranian threat, is virtually certain, with a significant prospect of a a genocidal attack backing it up. Now, of course, if Iran obtained nuclear weapons, individual Israelis could leave and thus avoid any threat um, to life and limb, given the Jewish experience of persecution and genocide um, this is not unlikely. Undoubtedly, this is one of Ahmadinejad's hopes, because this would leave Israel open to be overrun. But it's absolutely no defense of the Iranian president to point out that he might prefer that Israelis simply leave, um, leaving Israel very vulnerable, um, than actually killing them. Walter captures this type of terrorizing fear when he considers that a threat may be sufficient to justify defensive war against states and nations that are in a sense already engaged in harming us and who have already harmed us by their threats, even if they have not yet inflicted any physical injury. Furthermore, as noted, Iran has already inflicted physical injury with its complicity in terrorism. Certainly support for such attacks indicate manifest intent to injure. Possibly such attacks already constitute armed attacks against Israelis. Much more active preparation in the nuclear direction, and Iran's intent becomes a positive danger. An early military strike against Iran might then be justified as defensive, in Walter's terms, when a general situation emerges in which waiting or doing anything other than fighting greatly magnifies the risk to markets. All right, I suggested that the threat of a nuclear Iran is credible and that the risk is genuine. Precise probability of an Iranian attack, either directly or by terrorist proxy, seem extremely difficult to gauge, and I'll admit that. This, I think, is where magnitude of harm fits into the risk factor. Any quantitative, rather than straightforwardly temporal, interpretation of imminence has to account not only for the likelihood of a future attack, but also for the extent of harm, the magnitude of harm in question on anything but the most antiquated understanding of imminence, relevant only to attack with conventional weapons, the sheer vastness of the the possible atrocity has to fit in to our calculations of risk and urgent necessity um, as part of the overwhelming nature of the threat. Of course, recognizing that the magnitude of harm lowers the threshold for prevention, as Lubin does, doesn't in itself justify (coughs) any particular attack. In thinking about this specific case, I think we should resist easy answers from those who would entirely disregard international constraints in favor of renewing an overall permissive doctrine of preemption. I think there's quite a lot of literature like that, John Yoo, Alan Dershowitz, and so forth. But routine and predictable opposition to any early military strike under any conditions is equally dangerous and simplistic. There's no call for automatic rejection of the military option, neither from the perspective of the just war tradition, nor from international law. Both have the resources for authorizing such, such action um, in the appropriate cases. <laughs> Possibly the language of preemption and imminence may not even be necessary when one recognizes Iranian-sponsored terrorism as armed attacks against Israel that have already occurred. Certainly funding and supporting these attacks offer material injury and constitute manifest intent to injure on the part of Iran optimally any early strike on Iran would be an international endeavor and not an Israeli endeavor it would be authorized in advance by the UN Security Council and backed by the United States this is extremely unlikely failing that to conclude should Israel attack Iran like any military action such an operation would only be justified at the point of last resort as an absolute last chance at averting a catastrophic harm And the most crucial practical questions here cannot be answered in theory. When would that be? Similarly, satisfying the just war requirement of proportionality ad bellum will depend on the extent of military action required and its costs, both direct and collateral, as against its projected benefits. All this is widely disputed even among military experts. And I'm not a military expert. It's obvious that Israeli preventive action would be limited, falling far short of conquest and regime change, the type we saw, obviously, in Iraq. Just look at the size of Israel and look at the size of Iran. Um, on the other hand, it's wildly optimistic, in fact, impossible to think that the threat of a nuclear Iran can be thwarted by a single in and out Israeli airstrike of the type that took place in Iraq in '81, On all accounts, the situation is extremely dangerous and extremely complicated. Such a strike is likely to cause considerable collateral damage. It might result in enhanced terrorism against Israel, probably enhanced terrorism against Jewish communities abroad. Conceivably, it might result in war with neighboring Arab countries, such as Syria. I think that's a bit less likely. As for the benefits, admittedly the optimal aim of an Israeli strike would be forestalling a developing harm and postponing the threat as far as possible into the distant future. It's doubtful whether any nation can be prevented indefinitely from attaining nuclear power if it remains determined to do so. Halting a genocidal threat and significantly postponing its recurrence with the hope of future improvement in the overall situation is nonetheless no small achievement. As for appropriate timing, American assessments indicate, as I've suggested, that the threat to be averted in relation to which imminence is to be judged is not an actual Iranian attack on Israel, but rather the point at which Iran could obtain nuclear capacity. President Obama's position that a nuclear Iran would be unacceptable implies that this eventuality in itself would constitute a harm to be averted whenever it emerges as imminent. Certainly it cannot be averted after it matures. Preemption in such cases, once a threatening nation is armed with nuclear weapons and poised to attack, is clearly not a feasible option. If this is so, then if and when all else fails, and I stress that, if and when all else fails, and subject to reliable international intelligence gathering and proportionality, the right time to strike would not be when an actual nuclear attack is on its way but rather when Iran is on the brink of acquiring nuclear weapons. Any later than that, and the response is too late, useless, and probably suicidal. Any sooner, and the threat is non-imminent in any sense of the word. However, if there is to be any margin for error, I suggest, the magnitude of the risk implies that it would be preferable and justifiable for Israel to err on the side of striking somewhat too early rather than striking too late. Stated plainly, there's simply too much to lose. Thank you. Thank you.